Arise, awaken working people. Arise against the enemy, hungry folk. Ring out, cry of the people's vengeance. Forward, 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 forward. It's been 100 years since revolution swept through Russia. This song, the Russian version of the Marseillaise, which was an anthem born out of the French Revolution, was being sung in the streets of Petrograd in 1917. It was a seminal moment in world history. I'm Annabelle Bly, and this episode of The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation, is dedicated to the centenary of the Russian Revolution. But before we begin, it's worth remembering what things were like in Russia in 1917. This was a country brought to its knees, labouring under the economic and social costs of World War I. People were getting desperate. They were hungry. Many soldiers were mutinous and clamoured for peace with Germany. The revolution in 1917 took place in two stages. What's known as the February Revolution began with a series of protests in the capital city of Petrograd. Rioting, strikes and then mutiny followed. Tsar Nicholas II was forced to abdicate, bringing to an end the Romanov dynasty, which had ruled Russia for over 300 years. Into the political vacuum that followed came a new provisional government. It was made up of an array of different political parties and personalities, and it shared power with the Petrograd Soviet. This influential council of workers and soldiers counted among its members the Bolsheviks, the party of Lenin and Trotsky, who went on to take control of the country in what's known as the October Revolution. To investigate why the provisional government failed, the anthill producer Gemma Ware met a man whose grandfather was at the centre of it all, albeit on the losing side. And just a quick note on dates before we go any further. So what's known as the February Revolution actually took place in March, and what's known as the October Revolution actually took place in November. At the time, Russia was using the old Julian calendar, which was 13 days behind the Gregorian one that the world uses today. From here onwards, we'll be referring to the dates from the modern Gregorian calendar in this podcast. Over to Gemma. Stephen Kerensky only met his grandfather Alexander a few times. He says he was always very secretive and very conspiratorial. So we, I met him a couple of times when I was... Uh, 13 or 14 and 15 but in 65 he came up to us in Southport and stayed with granny while uh, we went on holiday I had two weeks with him but I knew absolutely and precisely nothing whatsoever about either Russia or him Alexander Fyodorovich Kerensky was the last leader of Russia before Vladimir Lenin in July 1917 he became head of the provisional government which ruled Russia between March and November, when the Bolsheviks seized power. Unable to marshal enough military support to stop Lenin and Trotsky, Kerensky went into hiding. In May 1918, he fled Russia and lived in exile for the rest of his life. Kerensky was much maligned by the communist Soviet regime in the years that followed, accused of being in cahoots with right-wing agitators who had tried to stop the revolution in its tracks and of taking up residence amid the opulence of the Winter Palace. And he's not been treated kindly by historians either, who have suggested that Kerensky failed to take the kind of decisive measures that might have helped to enforce the authority of the provisional government. He has been called naive and weak, and criticised for the decisions he made during the crucial summer of 1917, before the revolution in November. But some historians are now open to reappraising Kerensky's legacy. One of them is Professor Mike Hughes, head of the History Department at Lancaster University. He knows Kerensky's grandson, who has spent the last 20 years trying to rehabilitate his grandfather's legacy. I went up to Lancaster, where Mike agreed to talk with Stephen for The Ant Hill. Here's Mike. I think one problem is that in the school books, Alexander Kerensky suddenly appears in 1917. He becomes Prime Minister of the Provisional Government. And people talk about his enormous popularity in the army and indeed uh, among some of the sort of the streets, the, the mood of, of, of Petrograd, the Russian capital. 
But I want to go back before that about where Kerensky came from, what his background was, and why, in a sense, he was able to command, and he was able to command, widespread popularity throughout much of 1917. This is really the nub of, of, of one of the nubs of, of, of the denigration of this man. He was a lawyer, graduated in 1905, his father had been Lenin's school teacher, uh, and his grandfather had been a priest who left the priesthood to become uh, a teacher. So between 1905 and 1917, most of his time, a bit less towards the end when he was in the Duma, most of his time was spent all over Russia defending the poor and the oppressed, i.e. mainly peasants, from the injustices of uh, the Romanov dynasty. Now, this is vitally important for two reasons. Firstly, he discovered in a precise legal way exactly what the faults of the system were. And in a more emotional way, he discovered what the people wanted done about it. And not only that, but he also knew how to speak to them. And hence the rather emotional and probably over-emotional uh, style of his, some of his speeches. A member of the Trudovic Party, essentially the Labour Party, Kerensky was elected to the Duma, the Russian Parliament, in 1912, just a few years after its creation by the Tsar, Nicholas II, following an uprising in 1905. After Nicholas was overthrown in March 1917, Kerensky held a series of posts in the provisional government, first as Minister of Justice, then Minister of War, and finally becoming Prime Minister in July 1917. He was also vice-chairman of the Petrograd Soviet of Workers' and Soldiers' Deputies, which went on to play a key role in November's Bolshevik Revolution. In a way, Kerensky is both praised and damned for his personality in 1917. On the one hand, he's the charismatic figure, the man who tours the army, the man who could have mobilised the masses. On the other hand, he's seen as the empty vessel, the talker who could do nothing, perhaps the man who wants to be Bonaparte and when he becomes Prime Minister, sit in the Winter Palace and, and control it. It's folly to think you can ever sum up a personality in, in a few words. But thank you both actually from your own, you know, your, your meetings with your grandfather, but more generally from your reading of history. Can you give me some sense of how you view his personality? He was really... I, I mean, how many people have we ever met, any of us here, who have earned the love of a huge nation? And Gennady Hippias, the poet, called him the first love of the revolution. And he was. And he, I mean, he, there were storms of applause and wild cheering wherever he went at the beginning of, of the time of the provisional government. But he was also formidable. He was a little bit intimidating. He had a very commanding personality. Now, I, I put it to anybody who's thinking about this. Would you want a vain, hysterical, dithering nitwit to be your defence lawyer if you were taking on the Tsar's courts? Would you? And do you think such a person would get anywhere at it? And I don't. Not for one second. I don't see how any... The two things don't fit. There's another thing that's never mentioned. In... April of 1916, Kerensky went to Sweden and had a kidney removed. Right? And therefore, he was on intravenous morphine all through the revolutionary period. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried intravenous morphine, but one of the things it does, it alters your personality. And it does make you uh, more variable in your moods. Two events in the lead-up to November 1917 are central to understanding Kerensky's legacy. The first is known as the July Days. Here's Mike again to explain. This is when some rank-and-file Bolsheviks try to, it seems, effectively seize power. Lenin is taken by surprise. He's not in charge of that. And he sort of tags along with it. It fails. Now, one of the charges made against Kerensky at the time and since is could Kerensky at that stage have taken a tougher line to snuff out Bolshevism? Well, this is a cracker because it also applies to the beginning of the revolution. It applies to bringing people like Trotsky and Lenin back out of exile. And uh, why was this man so stupid? 
Did he not realise that if he invited these people back there would be trouble? But the point is, you're either a czarist or you're not. You either imprison people without trial or you don't. And if they haven't done anything, there's no reason to put them in prison. On the contrary, there's every reason not to do so, because to do so is counter-revolutionary, and the revolution will roll on past beyond you. After the July days, Trotsky and other leading Bolsheviks were arrested, and Lenin went into hiding, and then on to Finland. To Stephen, the subsequent criticism of his grandfather by Western diplomats and historians stems from a basic fear. A fear that the kind of revolution that led to the downfall of the Romanov dynasty and the old world order that it represented would spread throughout Europe, which was still mired in the horrors of the First World War. You have to put this in a context of European history in which the only two comparable events are the execution of Charles I and the French Revolution. And it so overturned people's concept of reality, just as Lenin overturned people's concept of what was politically possible. The second major incident that has had a serious impact on Kerensky's reputation centres around the Kornilov affair. In September 1917, the head of the army, General Kornilov, began a march towards Petrograd in what was ultimately an unsuccessful attempt to seize power from the revolutionaries. It remains a controversial episode. That whole affair to this day is surrounded by confusion and uncertainty. We know there were telephone conversations between Korneliov and Kerensky. Um, what I think was going on was that Korneliov was determined to crush the provisional government. There have always been rumours that Kerensky actually wanted to bring him in to actually crush the, the radical left, etc. And the Korneliov revolt failed. Now, one of the tantalising possibilities around the, the whole Korneliov affair is what was the role of the British. Now, we know um, a few weeks, possibly a few days before the Korneliov rebellion, that the uh, American uh, military attaché, a man called Judson, William Judson, wrote uh, in a private letter, something is going to happen, but at least we here in the American embassy will have clean hands. So it's very, very obvious that he had picked up that some Allied representatives were playing with the idea of some kind of military counter-revolution. That, that's absolutely clear. The question is, what was British involvement? Could it actually have worked? And was it actually a disaster that showed how the British didn't really understand the state of the of Russia at that time in August 17th. Well, yes to all that. Stephen is particularly exercised about the involvement of a man called Commander Oliver Locker-Lampson of the Royal Navy Air Service Armoured Car Division, which had been in Russia since 1915. Stephen says his grandfather subsequently wrote that Kornilov had invited Locker-Lampson's division to join him in his move on Petrograd. Well, then he went. He went to he went to to Konoslechk, and Konov tried to get to, uh, to to St. Petersburg to close down the Soviet, and um, uh, the railwaymen wouldn't let them on a train. <laughs> so it was a farce. It was a black farce. Now, Charles Alston, a very good historian of Russia, wrote an article that appeared a few months ago on Lokolamson's uh, armored car squadron, and I note that she too can't find the evidence of the, the, the actual links, as it were. And it is one of those areas that is very, very murky, and I suspect that it may also owe something to the confusion of war. Now, this is one of those ones, there's a danger of conspiracy theory, because we don't have the evidence, and yet all my instincts as a historian is, is that the British are somewhere around it. Stephen, however, is adamant that his grandfather was not involved in the Kornilov affair. There was no possibility whatsoever he had anything to do with Konilov. But he had to be very careful, because unlike historians who have completely ignored the threat from the right in Russia, he knew very well exactly how dangerous those people were. After the failure of Kornilov's coup, Kerensky agreed to release Trotsky and other leading Bolsheviks from prison, eventually prompting Lenin to return to Petrograd. I wonder, in a sense, if it is the Korneliov Rebellion, which in some ways is a, a, a fairly random act of history, but it is absolutely fundamental in changing your grandfather's reputation, 
I would agree unfairly, because it, it has him denigrated from both the left and the right, which is perhaps always the fate of those who are trying to pursue something close to a middle course. The thing is that they hated him for his revolutionary views. They regarded him as the author of disorder. He, he was responsible, as far as they were concerned, for all the chaos in Russia. When he died in a hospital in New York in 1970, the staff there were nurses of Russian origin, and they refused to touch him, uh, an 89-year-old man dying of cancer and shingles. Right? That's what they did, because they held him responsible for starting the revolution. The man responsible for the Russian revolution was Nicholas Romanov. It is very clear that by September 1917, there is a kind of vacuum of, of power, that Kerensky has been wounded by the Korneliov affair, even though he wasn't responsible for it, that the left are presenting a particular view of him, that allied ambassadors are putting impossible demands on him that he can't possibly meet. Do you think by then the Bolshevik revolution is inevitable could anyone have stopped it well i think probably could have done but there was there was no focal point to form a resistance around and the the, the shock and the horror of these people who would stand around in groups intimidating you as you walk past them on the street and if they let you go they made sure that you realized that the next time you might not be so lucky and if that was the case there would be no limit to what they wouldn't do to you and that's what did it. That was, that was what won it for the Bolsheviks, really. After the tumult of November 1917, Russia descended into civil war. Kerensky left in disguise on a steamer for Britain, but his wife Olga and her two sons Gleb, Stephen's father, and Oleg, stayed in Russia. They had a very difficult few years and were put in the notorious Lubyanka prison for a time. Olga then narrowly escaped from Russia with the two boys in 1920, through Estonia to Sweden and on to Britain. She and Kerensky eventually divorced in 1939. And uh, then she was in the Blitz in London and wouldn't go down the shelters, was in a top floor flat and the roof was blown off twice. And then she came to us and she was, well, I don't know, I can't, I can't begin to describe her. There would be days when she wouldn't speak. There would be days when she always would say, Bojomai, 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 oh my God. And she treated my father in particular with a venom uh, containing all the rolled up pain and misery <laughs> of, her, of her life. Stephen is clearly emotional when remembering his grandmother's life. She died in 1975 in her sleep, a few years after her ex-husband. Her two sons had successful lives in the UK and both of them ended up as engineers. As for Kerensky, the former Prime Minister, he spent the decades in between the two world wars, in between Paris and London. In 1940, the year after he and Olga divorced, he remarried and went to live for a time with his new wife in Australia. When she died in 1946, he went to the US, where he wrote and lectured. It's only in Britain that Kerensky is, is, is treated with utter contempt. They're, they're, they're very fond of him, actually, in France and Italy and Germany and Spain and, and also in America, where he was put up, this rev Russian revolution was put up in a New York brownstone near Central Park by a Republican senator and his wife. Kerensky was often very short of money. When in the US, he went to Stanford University to work on a large collection of papers there relating to the provisional government. He had to get a job as a library assistant to pay his way. That's how, that's how well off he was. That's how many millions he had salted away in Swiss bank accounts that he's been accused of. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about his writings on the Russian Revolution is, of course, they're informed by particular perspectives, but these are not crude hatchet jobs. They're useful sources and, and they're well, they're well written. Um, do you think he became a kind of, um, almost a dispassionate historian, if I can put it that way? Well, do you think he had the kind of disposition that meant he did want to actually understand the past, not from his own crude perspective? When everyone is lying about you, the last thing you do is, t is try to break it with lies. Not only was he not 
dishonest, but he's self-effacing. He never said anything about his kidney. He never said anything about his wife and children. He never said anything about the rest of his family. Stephen remembers that his grandfather was totally unconcerned by his critics. He was totally, totally unconcerned by all the abuse he gets. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a bit in Julius Caesar uh, where Brutus says, your threats pass me by as of the idle wind and I respect them not. I want to thank you enormously for that, Stephen. We've uh, spoken about these events over many, many years. And uh, whilst I don't agree with everything you, you say, I do think you are right that there's been a, a curious denigration of Alexander Kerensky, really from 1917 right down to the present day. And I'm still not certain I entirely understand it. History is most often written by the victors. In Kerensky's case, this was Russia's Soviet regime and the Allied forces who won the First World War and redrew the map of Europe at the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. For Stephen Kerensky, fighting his grandfather's corner for the last few decades has been a heavy burden to bear. There's no doubt that the pivotal role that his grandfather played in the Russian Revolution will continue to be poured over by historians for years to come. Gemma Werther. From the political intrigue of the provisional government, we move our attention now to events on the ground and what life was like in the build-up to the Bolshevik coup of November 1917. To help bring it all to life, here's Laura Hood, the Conversations Politics Editor. When we talk about the Russian Revolution of 1917, it's so often a discussion of the new world it engendered and the huge ideas it gave birth to and the heroes or villains it created. But what was it actually like to be there What did the average Russian experience as they looked out onto the streets of Petrograd while history was being made around them? What did the revolution really look like? What did it sound like? What did it smell like? This was a cataclysmic moment in modern history, and as anyone knows, cataclysms aren't particularly clean, sterile affairs. No one ever made history without making a bit of a racket, and no one ever overthrew the world order without getting a little bit sweaty in the process. Luckily, I'm not the only person who wants to sniff out the truth of the matter. I've asked two experts to help me understand what the revolution really felt like. They are Jan Plamper, a professor of history at Goldsmith University of London, and Pauline Fairclough, a reader specialising in Soviet music and culture at the University of Bristol. Jan, so many uh, paintings and images of the time depict the most famous protagonists in the revolutionary story climbed atop a pile of crates giving some great speech to the crowds below. Is that an accurate depiction of what the streets of Petrograd were like during the revolution? That is an accurate description, uh, but it's probably not what what stuck in people's minds, certainly not what was remembered. If you think about February, the February Revolution, the the real break, how did people actually become aware that a revolution was happening? Well, they heard gunshots and from different places coming, not just from concentrated sites of rituals and so on, but from all over the city. Then they heard the shattering of glass. And later on, a couple of days later, they smelled the burning of archival documents because the archives, especially the police files, uh, had been burnt. And then later on, throughout the spring of 1917, you had a real mixing of social groups and senses that had never come into a a single space. So at the Taurite Palace, where the Petrograd Soviet was meeting, for instance, people from the upper classes were appalled by the smells from people sweating, living there literally for days on end. Um, They had never encountered anything like this before. Same on the streetcars and so on. The October Revolution itself was anticlimactic uh, from a sensory history perspective. more of the same, which is one new explanation why the Bolsheviks had to invest so much later on in the 20s in order to establish October rather than February in people's memory as the real break. Let's go a little bit more into what you described as uh, an olfactory class struggle, almost. Yes. Um, this idea of the working classes entering um, imperial buildings, these grand buildings for the first time, a little bit sweaty and a little bit smelly, and that being a bit of an affront to uh, the upper classes. Yes, not just that. They also smoked. They started smoking in movie theatres, something that was unheard of 
They spat shells of sunflower seeds onto the floor. This was a marker of peasant and working class background. A lot of first person sources describe the streets of Petrograd, the sidewalks literally being covered by these sunflower seed shells. So it was really a coming into single spaces of different senses that had been neatly separated before that. And sometimes it was absolutely overpowering. And what did that feel like from the side of the working classes, you know, the pongy ones that were entering these buildings? You have a you have a real turning of uh, the tables. You have signs, markers, sensory markers that used to be, you know, highly accepted and, and value uh, and that going the other way around. And people would exclaim mm, epithets such as uh, bourgeois, bourgeois uh, in Russian uh, towards people who smelled differently. A speaker who would have would be perfumed or would have neat intelligentsia fingers would be less credible if it were, you know, a speaker from the left giving a speech. There were so many speeches in the streets during throughout 1917. Uh, he, most of them were male, would lose in credibility if his kind of s- the sensory markers of his body physically gave him away as being of a different class background and not being credible. And one of the um, one of the moments that you've written about, which really struck me as sort of a fascinating element of the smells of the revolution, happened slightly after October, when people started to raid the imperial wine cellars. Right. The episode is known as the so-called wine pogroms, um, and the Bolsheviks tried to get this under control. They never really managed. They only managed when they actually poured vodka, beer, etc. supplies into the canals of St. Petersburg. So the whole city, for weeks, uh, there was a, a stench of alcohol in the air. And this elicited a lot of repulsion on the part of the upper classes. So for instance, the daughter of the British ambassador, she describes how uh, she was repulsed uh, when seeing people scraping wine-soaked red snow uh, together with their bare hands and gobbling it up in the streets. She'd never seen anything like this before. Goodness. So the the revolution was actually a little bit alcoholic in the end. (laughs) It was. And this is something that, you know, historians of the Russian Revolution haven't taken into consideration enough. But the Bolshevik government took steps to chuck all this this booze down the canals and into the gutters. So was the government itself sort of unhappy with this inebriation that had sort of broken out in, in the streets? It had an ambiguous attitude towards this because one of its main concepts was elementalism, stichia. So they they liked, the Bolsheviks valued the elementary, uh, sort of unruly, irrational behavior of the crowd. And that was a big thing in explaining why the crowds um, supported the Bolsheviks. On the other hand, they were always afraid of things going out of hand of uh, the crowds becoming sort of more revolutionary than the disciplined uh, revolutionary vanguard uh, of the actual Bolshevik theorists and uh, politicians. So you you need a certain amount of hustle and bustle and shouting to make a revolution exciting and and make it work, but you don't want it to get too out of control. We've sort of got a very good idea of what it smelt like to be on the streets of Petrograd at the time, uh, perfume and wine. What did it sound like? Were there sort of just groups of people out on the streets having enthusiastic debates and shouting and giving speeches, or was it less controlled than that? What did the average Russian experience? Well, when they heard streetcars, that meant that there was uh, no major revolutionary action going on, because uh, streetcars signified uh, order and the state actually working. Whenever there were no, there was no clanging and so on of the of the streetcars. Uh, it was clear that something was going on. Gunshots are key, and people became very attuned. Uh, their sensorium was on high alert. They became very good at distinguishing between various kinds of gunshots. Were these machine guns? Uh, where they, were they coming from? Or was it live ammunition or blank ammunition, and so on? That was one thing. There was definitely a lot of speechifying in the streets. A lot of very spontaneous people would get up on a lamppost or something and start giving speeches. So, Jan, you've, you've told us about how the streets sounded. What about music? I think that's something that most people associate very much with uh, revolutionary Russia. Yes, well, before the revolution, you'd hear regiments playing the national anthem of the Russian Empire, the Romanovs, God Save the Tsar. And that changed after February. 
Pauline, that's quite a, a bombastic tune, you might say. <laughs> so we see uh, God Save the Tsar beginning to sort of fade away and the workers of Russia starting to sing their own version of the Marseillaise, which was itself uh, an anthem born of revolution in France. Naturally, that was got rid of fairly quickly. They started using the workers' Marseillaise instead. Were the lyrics the same as the uh, as the original French version? Was it all about no. workers and um, citizens rising in the streets? The workers' Marseillaise was really um, focused on you know the evil blood sucking Tsar and you know the aristocrats. So there is even a line that says, "And um, the evil vampire Tsar defeat them, kill them," which of course is exactly what happened. Goodness! All right, so it's a lot more direct. Jan, what do you think about the adoption of, of the French song um, into the Russian Revolution? What's the significance of that? Well, the, the Marseillaise was multivalent. It meant different things to different people. So it, it worked both for, uh, you know, the liberals who came to power in the uh, February Revolution and it worked for parts of the left. So as we've heard, the, the Marseillaise became very popular, new lyrics to fit the Russian circumstance. But that also began to fade out and was ultimately replaced with the Internationale as a tune. What, what was the thinking behind yeah. that? Well, I think for a start, the Bolsheviks were extremely hostile, it hardly needs to be said, to the provisional government. And this is the song that had been sung under the provisional government. So the Bolsheviks didn't want to sanction that. And the Internationale was sung anyway. But it's worth noting, there's, a, there's an interesting memoir by a conductor called Nikolai Malko, he was active as a conductor during this revolutionary period, and he remembers that in late September 1917, so just before the, the Bolshevik Revolution, he was conducting a, a concert, and at the start of the concert, the audience insisted that he play the Marseillaise a nine times. I mean, whether or not that was really the whole song, because there were many stanzas, <laughs> and I'm sure that nobody could have possibly remembered all those words. But maybe they just sang the first verse and chorus, but yeah, nine times. So it's sort of easy to say, yes, the Bolsheviks replaced it with with this, but, you know, once a song has taken root like that in the public consciousness, it doesn't die straight away. I think the, the, the concern really was just, you know, have a Bolshevik-approved replacement, but people were going to still carry on singing the Marseillaise, of course. So were there people really sort of going around the streets singing songs? Was it really that carnivalistic, the atmosphere? Probably at some public meetings. I, I know that they sang in, in the beginning of concerts, and eventually that became a, a kind of a real ritual, you know, like our old ritual performing the national anthem. And Pauline, I wanted to ask, you, you told us an interesting story about Wagner and his fate in the transition from uh, Tsarist Russia to Soviet rule. What was the big deal about him? Well... Eventually, it wasn't just that Wagner was singled out. When Germany and Russia were at war during the First World War, Nicholas II banned the performance of German music. And because Wagner wrote big operas, it was kind of noticeable when they were cancelled, as they were. So the Marinsky Theatre replaced their entire Wagner subscription series with Rimsky-Korsakov operas in 1914. But it was one of the first things that Lenin did in 1917 was to overturn that ban. Because Lenin had a, a little soft spot done. for Wagner. So when Lenin was living in Zurich, he regularly visited the opera and went to hear Wagner operas there. So this wasn't public knowledge at the time. You know, he didn't give speeches telling people how much he loved Wagner. But eventually it came out in his widow's memoirs that he really loved Wagner. But I take it that wasn't the kind of music that the average uh, Russian was listening to at the time. Well, it depends what you mean by average Russian, you know, because there's a huge urban population that are quite used to going to listen to the opera and concerts. They're not like all the rich people, you know. A lot of these people would just be ordinary people and students and indeed the proletariat because there were serious concerted attempts made to educate the proletariat. So, it, you know, it's really not the case that you have the peasantry and the proletariat um, and then you have this completely separate audience. Of course, they were largely separate, but they were not entirely separate. And to add to that uh, very important point, it's also, of course, true that, that this was a multi-ethnic empire. That's very important to remember. So 
um, there were a lot of non-Russian nationalities, and you you could actually already detect from what the sounds of uh, what language were being spoken. It's just take Petrograd on the streets of Petrograd. So many Germans uh, either left or had to leave um, because of the anti-German pogroms during the First World War, and then after the revolution. And people would note that you can no longer hear German in the streets. Uh, these are ethnic Germans from the Russian Empire. You can no longer hear Finnish. Many of them had emigrated as well. You can no longer smell uh, the smell of German bakeries in the streets of Petrograd. Well, there we have it. That's what the revolution sounded like, what it looked like, and what it smelt like. Jan Plamper and Pauline Fairclough, thanks very much for taking me on this sensory journey. Well, thanks so much for having me. Great pleasure. Thank you. That was Laura Hood, the Conversations Politics Editor. One of the most famous books about the Russian Revolution is John Reed's Ten Days That Shook the World. And shake the world they did. The revolution's impact reverberated well beyond Russia's borders, especially through Europe, which was still fighting the biggest war the world had ever seen. The Conversation's international editor, Andrew Nocti, explores what happened across the continent as the Bolsheviks took control. When the Bolsheviks rose to power at the end of 1917, Europe was still a year away from the end of the First World War. No one could know what the Russian Revolution would mean for the rest of the continent, but top of the list of concerns was the future of Russia's role in the war. I talked to John Davis, a senior lecturer in history at Anglia Ruskin University, about how the great powers grappled with the situation. I think there's that real concern that Russia was going to pull out of the war. This had been a, um, a consideration for the British government, uh, particularly from the round summer of 1917, the German government had been trying to foster this uh, to the point that they had helped to send Lenin back to Russia in April 1917, because they knew that if Lenin had uh, was able to go back and be successful in keeping the revolution going, uh, it destabilizes Russia even further, and then uh, Germany can sort of make gains there. And then if Russia pulls out of the war, Germany can shift its troops uh, to the Western Front. Germany and the Central Powers managed to strike an armistice with Russia in December 1917, and the two sides began peace negotiations. In the end, it didn't work. When that ceasefire begins to deteriorate because Trotsky is uh, trying to postpone discussions, really, about what will happen next, because Trotsky and Lenin are waiting for the revolution to spread, the Germans begin to push more and more, and you end up with a very harsh Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918, which is where Russia finally comes out of the war. The terms of the Brest-Litovsk Treaty were harsh on the Soviets, but by that point, Germany was very much on the back foot, and eight months later, the war was over. Politically humiliated and economically shattered, post-war Germany was a fragile and angry place. And after the Kaiser abdicated at the end of 1918, the country's revolutionary Marxists thought their time had come. Among them were two of the most famous revolutionaries in history, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, who founded the Spartacus League, an anti-war Marxist organisation that eventually renamed itself the Communist Party of Germany. In January 1919, with Germany in near disarray after one failed uprising, they made a revolutionary push of their own. But the Spartacists were crushed by government forces, and many of them were killed in the process, Luxembourg and Liebknecht included. The Spartacists uh, read the mood, the sort of the radicalising mood as the Kaiser had fallen, uh, and sort of moving into this sort of revolutionary mood in Germany. But I think it failed because there wasn't ultimately the will for that kind of revolution. Again, Germany, certain sections of German politics had lived, shifted to the left, um, but not in the radical kind of way that Luxembourg and Leibniz had uh, had hoped for, and certainly not in the radical kind of way that uh, Russia had gone. Um, so I think that the, the the social democrats kind of began to move uh, or manoeuvre, I think, into power. They then uh, obviously murdered um, or had uh, Leibniz and Luxembourg murdered, and the revolution never really sort of caught on in the same way that it did in Russia. Luxembourg's writings are remembered to this day. She's famous for her immortal line, freedom is always the freedom of the one who thinks differently. But ultimately, Germany's experience of the 20s would be rather different than she and Liebknecht intended. Hyperinflation, the collapse of the Weimar Republic, the rise of the Nazis. Elsewhere in Central Europe, other communist movements had better luck. 
Out of the ashes of one of the continent's great empires emerged the independent state of Hungary. I spoke to Gareth Dale, senior lecturer in politics at Brunel University, London, who explains what happened there starting in 1918. It was a country that was still at war. Um, it was a component part of a, an empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Habsburg Empire. The war was coming to an end. The war had witnessed a great deal of suffering, of course, uh, the various uh, horsemen of the apocalypse that war brings with it had laid many low. Um, deaths and injuries were extremely high for a number of years. Disease and famine uh, as well. Um, so against this backdrop, a process of social polarization uh, set in and political polarization as well, including a, a radicalization of a large segment of Hungarian society um, to, towards the left. Eventually, these processes began to boil over. Furious and exhausted from years of poverty and war, Hungary's workers and peasants set about organising to remake their lives and their country. Workers' councils and soldiers' councils began to be formed, and in, in some parts of Central Europe, including parts of Hungary, these were councils that, as economic relations broke down, workers in the factories formed committees and councils which began to control the process of production, began to um, control trade and supplies um, and management within the factory as well. And so these offered, as the Soviet councils in Russia had been doing in 1917, just a year earlier, these offered a new, the potential for a new form of um, constituted political and economic power, which would be a potential rival to the, the liberal state that was coming into being in 1918. So you can see it's a period of enormous flux, a period in which many people in Hungary and Central Europe and across Europe indeed were calling to question the whole existing order. Revolution wasn't far off. And where Germany's left-wingers failed in 1919, Hungary's broke through. Hungary was subject to a, a revolution known as the Chrysanthemum Revolution or the, the White Aster Revolution um, due to the fact that people taking to the streets wore flowers in their lapels. This was in October 1918. Um, it helped bring the war to an end. It led to the Declaration of Independence of Hungary from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Those same processes of social mobilization continued, however. People placed demands on the government, demands for further um, redistribution of land to the peasantry. Um, and the government was dilatory on, on questions such as that. Unable to satisfy its people, Hungary's post-war government eventually caved in. Power was handed to the left-wing Social Democrats, and to stabilise their own regime, they invited the Communist Party into government with them. And then things got really interesting. And this marked the beginning of the uh, Council's Republic in Hungary, which lasted roughly six months, spring to summer 1919. The government there was composed of the communists and the left social democrats, which oversaw a very radical set of reforms, particularly in culture and education systems and so on. Um, divorce laws were were altered in favor of, uh, of women. Um, the school curriculum was transformed, much more world literature, much less Greek and Latin. Uh, you know, a, a whole welter of reforms were, were introduced. Cut-priced tickets were offered to working people to, to attend the theater. Um, you name it. It was a revolutionary period in many respects, and the sort of effervescence and explosion of debate that characterizes revolutionary situations was was certainly evident. Um, but meanwhile, the material conditions of uh, in society were continuing to uh, become even harsher. There was economic blockade, food relief that the Americans were bringing to some parts of Central Europe was cancelled as a result of the change of regime. The Communist Party in Hungary um, adopted some pretty unwise policies of sort of over-eagerness, kind of to rapidly nationalize all industries, to collectivize 
all of agriculture, even though they were uh, their legitimacy was uh, slightly tenuous as compared to the Russian experience as well. It faced invasion from neighboring states as well, and so it, throughout its uh, its brief six months, it was having to face up against the challenge from abroad, and it was Romanian troops in the end that brought it down. So World War One's losers faced outright revolutions, and some even ended up with communists in power within months of the war's end. But what about the winners? The British establishment, for one, was hardly at ease. With the Labour Party and Labour movement politics on the march, the old order might have won the war, but it still had plenty to worry about. But Britain wasn't Hungary, and nor was it Germany. And Britain's mainstream left was very different from its European counterparts. Sure enough, Soviet-style Bolshevism never quite caught on in the UK as it did elsewhere. Not that there weren't people who wanted it to work. Some on the left saw the Soviet Union as a beacon of hope. To them, socialism was finally under construction, and here was a chance to go out and see it at work. Some of them went to take a look and saw exactly what they wanted to see, but others were less enamoured with the Soviet experiment in practice. One of those who was critical of the new Soviet Russia was Ethel Snowden, the wife of Philip Snowden, who became Labour's first chancellor. Back to John. And she went out to Russia, uh, to Soviet Russia in 1920 as part of a wider Labour movement delegation, the TUC, the Labour Party. Although she was quite sympathetic to some of the harsher, maybe the stranger aspects of Bolshevism in the sense that she was uh, a Christian and a Christian socialist and also part of the temperance movement. So she was very supportive of the Bolsheviks clamping down on public drinking. But she hated the the violence that came with, uh, with Lenin's attitude towards the class war. And so I think part of that delegation went out there expecting to see socialism and came back very disappointed that this wasn't either wasn't the socialism that that they had believed in or indeed any kind of socialism um, that they would understand. And Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, was also uh, sort of an unofficial part of that delegation. Uh, And he said that, you know, what we've got here is uh, a dictatorship being formed. Whether it's a dictatorship of the proletariat or whatever, it's still a dictatorship. So there's that, that sense of feeling uneasy about the central control of the party and that emergence of a one-party state. But others were more positive. Among them was George Lansbury, who would later go on to lead the Labour Party in the 1930s. He went out to the Soviet Union in 1920 and wrote a book called What I Saw in Russia. Lansbury was also uh, a pacifist. He was also uh, on the uh, sort of a Christian socialist, but he had um, a history of direct action. Obviously, you know, he, he worked in the or was part of the Poplar movement fighting against government cuts. So maybe he had a sympathy towards direct action that someone like Ethel Snowden, who believed in the parliamentary, only the parliamentary route, um, didn't have. But Lansbury was very uh, positive and much more supportive of, of what was going on. John says the best person to turn to for a more balanced account is Walter Citrine a leading British trade unionist. He went out in 1925, he went into 1935, uh, he, and then a couple of times during and after the war. His reports are much more balanced. He could see the positives and the negatives. So he fully accepted that there was a, a, it was a dictatorship, fully accepted that there, were, uh, there was no sense of democracy, but at the same time believed in what he saw as the modernisation of Russia, the modernisation of the Soviet Union, the planned economy, um, the role that the working class clearly had, and I think the, the best way to understand the difference of between, say, the British Labour Party or the Labour movement and what was going on in the Soviet Union was a comment that Citrine made to, uh, to his travelling companions um, on the train to Russia when he said that he believed in the class struggle, not the class war. While we were talking, I asked John how the revolution is remembered in Russia itself. He said the pros and cons of Bolshevism aren't really the point. What matters is how Russians feel about their country today. I think they're struggling to work out how to to commemorate it, partly because the last thing you want to do is to remind people that they have the power to overthrow governments. But Putin has centralised a certain amount of power, not in a necessarily in a, a Soviet way, but I think there are maybe echoes of certain aspects of, of the Soviet Union here. That said, he is extraordinarily popular. What he's done is he's ended the drift that Russia had gone through since uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Yeltsin years and the chaos of the Yeltsin years. He's created this environment where Russians can be happy to be Russians again, to be proud to be Russians and to be proud of Russia. Putin hasn't said, you know, he's not trying to airbrush the past. He's fully accepted that the purges happened, the terror happened, that there were these 
awful moments in Soviet history. At the same time, he's highlighted the fact that Stalin created a strong uh, state, a strong economy that allowed, or a strong country that allowed Russia to be, or the Soviet Union to become a superpower, a nuclear superpower. And Stalin did the same with Peter the Great and Ivan the Terrible said, you know, look, there are these strong czars. They used harsh and brutal means and tactics, but at the same time, they left Russia in a stronger state. And Putin has done the same to say, well, there may be harsh tactics that we're using, but he has made Russia matter again. He has made Russia and Russians proud again. Once again, Russia is flexing its muscles in a chaotic, multipolar world. Much of Europe is anxiously eyeing its eastern borders, and political establishments everywhere are falling prey to Russian-backed or Russian-inspired insurgencies. Some things, it seems, never change. That was Andrew Nocti. The Conversation will be running a series of articles on the Russian Revolution. Be sure to look out for their detailed takes on why the revolution failed to take hold in other European countries and what the legacy of the revolution is today. That's all we've got time for on Russia for this episode of The Ant Hill. But before we go, we wanted to give a little plug for a new podcast called Trust Me, I'm an Expert from our sister website, The Conversation Australia. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts. Various surveys right around the world showing that uh, confidence in media has dropped in recent years. You are fake news. Who do you trust to tell you what's fact and what's fake? To answer the questions that you've always wondered about. I'm Sananda Cray and this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert. A show from The Conversation where we ask the experts to surprise, delight and inform us on everything from the curious to the serious. Check out their first episode, where Sunanda and her colleagues interview experts on the same-sex marriage debate, which is currently rocking Australia. That's Trust Me, I'm an Expert, which you can find on theconversation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this episode of The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation. Sign up to The Conversation's free newsletter to get a daily dose of news analysis and opinion from experts in their field. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share your love with your friends. And if you're feeling really kind, give us a review online. A final big thanks, as ever, to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. <laughs>